0: chapter 2, and uh, we want to continue on in this sermon series that we've been in now for some weeks, and we'll be in for a while to come. Um, and I, I admit that uh, what you may be expecting is that we would continue on into the passage in Hebrews chapter 2, keep going further. We're not going to do that. We're going to park in Hebrews 2, 5 through 9 again this morning. Because I think it's important that we grasp the truth in 2, 5 through 9, so that we can understand or have any opportunity to understand 10 through 18. God's desire from before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world, God's desire was to save His elect people in Christ. And He planned to accomplish this task through the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. Notice that God's plan for salvation or redemption, His plan for redemption, did not begin after Adam sinned. It's important we understand this truth. God was not reacting to the sinfulness of mankind when He decided to save His people. God was not saying, oh no, my good and great creation has run amok. Things have gone wrong. What will I ever do? Well, I, I, I guess, son, go down and make things right. And the son then said, if you say so, daddy. And he goes down into creation. That's not our God. That is not His plan. Because Ephesians... Now, I didn't just come up with this. Now, some of you may say, Now, this is debatable, Carlton. There's some people who say, God created it good, it went bad, and God corrected the bad. No. I say no, and I think it's because the Bible says no. God's plan for salvation didn't begin after the failure of mankind in the Garden of Eden. And although you may find it troublesome... I want to simply say the Bible is very clear about this fact, about God's desire and about His plan. Ephesians 1, 3-4 is enough evidence to support this statement. This is what it says. Listen to these words. This is the words of God through the pen of Paul. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. How has God blessed us? In Christ He's blessed us. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even, listen to this, just like He blessed us in Christ, even as He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. God's final word on when He planned to save a fallen humanity. Before the foundation of the world. How would He do it? In Christ. The same way that He has done all things in Christ. This is crucial that you grasp this. He chose us before the foundation of the world. The fact that He necessitated a choice before the foundation of the world means there are those who will be saved in Christ and those who will not be saved in Christ. And this was done before sin. Before, as Romans 9 says, there was anything good or evil, God chose His people. Before there was anything worthy of a choice, God chose. His choice predates the necessity of a choice because God is not dependent in anything on anyone or any condition. He sets the condition. His character sets the condition. His existence sets the condition on which He makes His plan. That's an amazing truth. And you may, initially, your pride may rise up and say, no, 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 that's not fair. But let me tell you, if you have it the other way, you have no assurance of salvation. Because if your salvation rests on anything but the pure unadulterated, unchanging, unmitigated, changeable, non-changeable character of God. If your salvation rests on anything else, any other condition, then it cannot be secure. You must hold this truth. Now, the preacher in Hebrews is going to make that statement in a more profound way, in a more detailed way than the writer of Ephesians, Paul. He's going to be more precise in Hebrews 2, 5-18. through 18. I want us to read Hebrews 2, 5-18 through 18 together. We're not going to preach all of this. It may take a long time for us to unveil all of the truth here. And then we won't be able to get it all. The title of the sermon today is Jesus, the Ultimate Man. Now let's read this text. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. Of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Putting everything in subjection under his feet. The writer quotes Psalm 8 verses 4 through 6, he quotes it not from the Hebrew, he quotes it from the Septuagint. That is crucial. It's crucial. The Hebrew text doesn't read exactly like this. The Hebrew text reads this way. What is man that that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him, you made him a little lower than the angels. You notice the change. The Septuagint writers who... The Hebrew writer is quoting, therefore the Septuagint rightly interprets what the Hebrew said. The Hebrew leaves us with a question. Hebrew often does that. It's not very specific. It's not very precise. There are several choices. So in the original manuscript and the copy which we have of it in the Masoretic text, the copy of the Hebrew, it says, you made him a little lower. That word little is, can be temporal. It can mean for a little while, or it can mean in rank, a little lower. Okay, And what we've done now by quoting the Septuagint is we've answered that question for all time. He made him for a little while lower than the angels. The writer of Hebrews has said to us what David meant and what God meant through David is not that he's pointing to the rank of things, but rather the extent of time that this would happen. This action happened for a time. Not for all time, just for a season. He made him for a little while lower than the angels. He's also translated something for us here and answered another question which is posed to us. Because in the Hebrew, the word, you see angels in that text, you see it? That word in the Hebrew is Elohim. Anybody recognize that word Elohim? That's a word often used in the Old Testament for God. Matter of fact, Elohim is the first name that we get. El Elohim. That's the first name of God. That's the Genesis name of God. Then we get Yahweh and we get Adonai and we get other names that spell out the character of God. But Elohim in the Hebrew Means heavenly being or beings. It's a plural word. All right? So some might say what, the, what, what David was trying to say is that you made him for a little while lower than God. That's the way some people translate. The ESV translated lower than the heavenly beings. It kind of still leaves it vague. The writer of Hebrews, again, just want you to grasp this. The Bible answers its own interpretive issues. If we will let the Bible answer, it answers. Are we to take the word in the Hebrew to mean God or to mean angels? What does the writer of Hebrews say? Angels. That ends the discussion. If it doesn't, then the writer of Hebrews has misunderstood. The word in the Greek is angelos, which means angel. So he's made the interpretive decision. Listen, don't overcomplicate your Bible. When a text is quoted in another part of the Bible, it gives often fuller understanding. Take the fuller understanding. That's what it means. The writer David is not saying he made man lower than God. He made man a little lower, for a little while, lower than the angels. He made him a little lower than the angels for a little while. And you crowned him with glory and honor. That's going to be an important part. I spent some time there as we're reading, explaining that, because that's going to be important as we move forward. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while, you notice that? He's grabbing those words from Psalm 8. He's not dealing with a different subject. It's the same subject. He but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Psalm 8. He's quoting Psalm 8. Namely who? Jesus. Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he... For whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory. Now I just want to stop again and give a little explanation here. Okay, we're not preaching Tim, but I can't leave this one out there because, as Dave said, Carlton, you'll send them home and they will—they will, they will be—it will be a miserable week for them worrying about this verse nine. Do you notice the way verse nine ends? So that he could taste death for everyone. What? That sounds that's so universal, right? It's all inclusive. Everyone. But verse 10 conditions verse 9. Verse 10 tells us who the everyone is. Who is the everyone that Jesus tasted death for? Those sons that he would bring to glory. Ah. When, when the scripture speaks generically or openly, and then it follows with a specific modifier, or explanation, we should understand the general by the specific. We should interpret the general by the specific. So there's no way you can walk away from this passage and say, well, God wants to say He's going to save everybody. There's no way you can walk away from here saying, I'm a universalist. God's going to save everybody. Why? Because verse 10 follows immediately. For it was fitting that He, from whom and by whom all things exist... In bringing many sons to glory. Who is the everyone? The sons of glory. That's who he tasted death for. Should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Saying... I will tell of your name to my brothers, speaking of God the Father. I will tell your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. This is a word on the lips of Christ. And again, I will put my trust in Him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps but he helps the offspring of Abraham therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people for because he himself has suffered when tempted he is also able to help those who are being tempted now you see why we'll be here a while there's a lot of theology there isn't there now, that means you got to be patient. And secondly, it means we need high attendance Sunday every Sunday. You can laugh. Don't be so stiff. No, but we do. If you miss a lot of these, it's not going to make a whole lot of sense. Just if you're in and out and you just pop in and out and you're just kind of free and willy-nilly with attendance, you'll be like, whoa, what's he talking about? Hey, you should have been here last week. Now, we're merciful people here at Grace Fellowship. So we put them on the web. Steve will have this up by the time I'm done almost. But you'll miss it. Be here. Be a part of the congregation. All right. We've read the text, the big text. And I do this because I want you and I want us to keep in mind the overall context. I want us to remain centered as we look at these little bite sizes of theology, these little bitty portions like we're going to look at today. It would be easy to get off track if we don't keep it in context. The pastor is saying to us, so I want to gain some greater context here, okay? This is what he's saying to us in the, in the sermon to the Hebrews. First, God has finally communicated to us through His Son. He says that in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. He says, hey, God spoke to us time immemorial from the garden He's been speaking to us in the prophets, but in these last days... In this final way, he has spoken by his son. So that's the first thing we see in this sermon. Second, God is finally communicated in his son. The first, the first communication is great. This communication we received by the prophets is a great communication, it's a holy communication, it's a right communication. But it is not the supreme revelation or communication, that's found only in Jesus. And so the writer of the Hebrews is building like a jet airplane taking off, saying, look, God started speaking from the beginning. And He spoke in various ways at various times to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, the jet took off in the person and work of Jesus. This is the supreme speaking. It's Jesus. Third, the pastor says that the Son is the exact imprint of God. Well, why is the last speaking through the Son greater than that that came through the prophets? Because the prophets are not the exact imprint of God, but Jesus is. You see that in verse 3 of chapter 1? He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. Not only is He the exact imprint, but He is the creator and the sustainer of all things. He's not only the exact imprint and the creator and the sustainer of all things, He is the high priest, the propitiatory sacrifice, the one who makes us pure from our sin. That's where He goes. And now He's seated in glory at the right hand of the Father. And then He says, fourth, I want you to know, this one I'm speaking of Notice he hadn't used his name yet. He's just called him son. This son is greater than the angels. Now, he's greater than the angels. The angels were reverenced, sometimes worshipped, definitely given respect and honor by Hebrew people. They were seen as these great and powerful, truly they are, great and powerful spiritual beings. But our writer, our pastor saying, listen to me. They don't deserve your worship. Jesus is greater. The Son is greater than the angels. Why? We might ask again why? Because He received a greater name than they have received. When He went back to heaven, He received a greater name than they have received. What name is it? Verse 5, the quote from Psalm 2 7, you are my Son. You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. So God has spoken a greater name over this one than the angels have. He is now at the same time truly the Son, Eternal, and the Son of David. He is both. He is God and He is man. He is the Creator and He is the Redeemer. He is the Lord, Adonai, and the King, Sovereign. This is the greater name that he has received. So he's greater than the angel. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. At the end of chapter 1, we get a rhetorical question. It doesn't get an answer at first. And to which of the angels has he ever said, and he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, Sit at my right hand while I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What are the, to, to which angel did he say this? Do you see that question? What what angel did he say this to? And then he doesn't give an answer. Don't you love it when preachers start a question and don't give you an answer? It's like, come on, man. No. He breaks off in 13 and goes through the first four verses of chapter 2 without an answer. But verse 5, the beginning of our passage for today, he gives an answer. And I want you to see this. And now it's important that we see this. The answer to the question, to which of the angels did God ever say? The answer is, God did not subject the world to come to angels. The answer is, to none of them. God has never given the world to come to the angels. It's not theirs. They don't rule over it. This is the world we've been speaking of, he says. This eschatological world, this last world, is what we've been speaking of. This is the negative answer to our question in 113. God has never said to any angel, Sit at my right hand while I make your enemies your footstool. God has never said that to an angel. But in verses 6 through 8a, he's going to give a positive answer. He's going to say, He didn't say it to an angel, but he did say it to someone. And he's going to tell us who the someone is. But again, the writer of Hebrews doesn't like blunt answers. If you're looking for blunt answers, straightforward theology, you need to look to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is a relatively simple book linguistically. It just states facts, presents them, and puts them out there with an answer. Hebrews rarely does that. He says, he didn't say it to the angels, but rather than just coming back and saying, hey, it's Jesus, he gives us this longer answer. And it it is so beautiful. And that's where we want to focus today. So we've got the context. We've gone back and looked at chapter 1. We've looked through past this passage into verse 18, all the way to verse 18. Now I want us to just focus in for just a few minutes on the unveiling of the answer. How, How did he show these people This is who rules the world to come. Look at these verses with me. He starts out in verse 6 saying, It has been testified somewhere. And I said last week, and I hope you understood, that doesn't mean he doesn't remember that it's Psalm 8. What he's doing is he's emphasizing that it's God who's saying this. He's looking past David, the human author, and he's saying, God said this. The people knew and the writer knew, the preacher knew, where this text comes from. And he quotes Psalm 8, 4 through 6. Now I want you to stay with me. And I want us to think through. God wants you to think hard. So think with me and I'm going to try to make it plain. How is he using this text to answer his question in one thirteen? How is he, the writer of Hebrews, using Psalm 8 to answer Psalm 110? How is he doing that? Well, we need to look at Psalm 8. Hold your place in Hebrews and go back to Psalm 8. Now David... The writer of Psalm 8 penned the words of Psalm 8. He penned these words for us. They're lofty words in regard to mankind. They're big words. They're mighty words. They're strong words. They're awesome words for us about mankind. Which begs the question, right? How can David be so positive about what he sees around him? I mean, when you look at humanity, let's just think about it. You don't have to go all the way back to the Hebrew days to see humanity for what it is, right? When you look at humanity, do you have this mindset? Verse 4, in Psalm 8, 4. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or oh, the son of man that you care for him, yet you have made him for a little while lower than than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion, rulership, sovereignty over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Men, this is speaking of humanity, but I just want to talk to the men for a minute. Men, don't you feel this way every morning when you wake up? I mean, this is a perfect depiction of how you feel about your life, isn't it? You have dominion. You rule. Some of you guys are sarcastically laughing. That's the intent. When David wrote these words, not one person in his audience said Yep, that's me. I've got dominion. My wife, my children, my dogs, they do exactly what I tell them to do. Not only that, but I rule my job and I rule over everything in my community. I'm telling you, I'm exalted. Every person reading David's original poem and the audience of the writer of the Hebrews and you wakes up every morning saying, Man, I'm barely hanging on. I don't know how to leave my wife. God's called me to have dominion and I don't even have dominion over my own home that well. I go to feed my dog and it bites my hand. I go to work and it's all messed up. Everybody, Everywhere I turn, I'm a failure. That's how I feel. Do you get the sense... Of the angst that's created when we see the exalted, created person of mankind. David in this text looks backward to the original creation. And he looks forward to Christ. He does both. He looks back into the Garden of Eden. Now that's what I want us to see first. First of all, from our text we see that man is created We see man as he is created in the garden before sin. We see him before sin. Adam was created in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. So let's take our Bible, turn to Genesis. This is necessary. This is a little bit of a theology lesson, but it is so crucial to our future in Hebrews. We've got to grasp this. Genesis 1, 26-27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image. After our likeness. Secondly, in the garden, we see that Adam had dominion over all the creation. Look what it says. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth. And over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Adam was given, mankind was given dominion. He was the king of the earth. He was to rule it and subject it and submit it to the will of God. From God through Adam, the world would be ordered, made right. All creatures, all things... Of our God and King. Let us praise Him. Praise Him. That was the original creation. Adam was to go forward from the garden and subdue and inhabit the whole earth. How was he to do it? He was to have more likenesses of God. In His image, He created man. And then what did He tell man do? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Before sin, that was the command to subdue the earth Under the rulership of God through the little king, the little k king, mankind. All of the earth was to be subdued this way. This was the hope, this was the promise, this was the plan. Adam was to function in the created world. Now listen to this. We're going to look at Genesis 2 and 3 real quickly. As a prophet, priest, and king. He had all of those roles before God and before man and before the world. How was he a prophet? Well, it was to him that God communicated his word. And a prophet is one who receives the oracle of God. Who was the first prophet? Adam. Adam received the word of God directly. It is to Adam that God said, You shall not eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay? So God spoke to Adam and implied there is that Adam was then to speak to his, his, uh, his other humans. To his wife, who would be created, and then through, their, through him and her, their rulership, to all the children. They were to hear the word of God through the mouth of their father, Adam. Secondly, he was to be a priest. How do we see that? Well, it's in a backwards kind of way. He doesn't say here directly, just come right out and say, you're a priest. But listen to the job that Adam was given. Listen to this job. There was a river and it flowed out of Eden. And it divided into rivers. And then it names the rivers and tells what kind of stones there were. And the name of the third river is the Tigris. And he goes through all of that. And then he says, verse 15, The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The Hebrew words there, both words, are the exact words used for the jobs of the priest in the tabernacle later in Leviticus. These are priestly jobs. He's to work and tend. Keep it pure. Watch over it. Do the work of God in that place. He's a prophet. He's a priest. We see his priestly role in another way. When man sins, who is deceived by the serpent? Adam? Who's deceived? Paul says, not Adam, but who? Say it. Eve. So God then turns to Adam and says, you have failed. Paul says, sin into the world through one man, Adam. And through that one sin, death spread to all mankind. Who got the responsibility for the sin of mankind? The priest did. Why? Because it was his job to tend and keep, watch and pray, till and produce. It was his job. It was his job to be the mouth of God and speak the words of God. Not only that, but he was a king. And we've already seen that happen with him. He had dominion. He had rulership over the whole of creation. He was the prophet, priest, and king of his day. This is who Adam was. But it's not who Adam is today, is it? No. Because Adam failed. In a perfect world, the man that was created without sin, given prophet, priest, and king status, talking to God Himself, walking with Him on a daily basis, and yet he failed, as R.C. Sproul said, one command. Just one. And he failed. Why? Because he grasped not for fruit. No. No. Mm-mm. He grasped for equality with God. You need to understand, God did not subject the world to death because a man ate an apple, as fruit of the loom shows us. Or any cartoon in your picture book shows you kids. No. God subjected to, God is not petty. That's my point. God is high and exalted, and He had created for man a perfect environment and placed the prophet, priest, and king in that place to tend the tabernacle and the place of the dwelling of God. Do you not understand what Eden was? It was where God dwelt with man and man dwelt with God. And in that place, the holy of holies of creation, man looked at God and said, I'll be God. You and I should feel the weight of that because when our first father chose that, we chose it. Every one of you plays the little God in your life, in your flesh. You reach for the power that belongs only to God, you act as if you are independent of God. I do it, you do it. We are fallen, we are sinful, we are broken. The good and great God of heaven created all things and subjected them to man. And man spit in God's face and said, I will do what I will do. I will be God. I don't need you. I don't want you. I can make a good king on my own. That's Genesis 3. In a paraphrase. That's it. And God comes to that place and says... Adam, where are you? The closeness and the nearness that he had had with his creator had been broken. He was separated. God knew where he was. Adam didn't know where he was. Not yet. Not fully. He knew it enough to know we've got to sew some clothes and put on some fig leaves. I feel embarrassed. But he didn't know the weight of it yet. And then in, Psalm, in, in Genesis 3, the weight falls. God says, because you have done this, the serpent will crawl on his belly and there will be enmity, verse 15, between the woman, the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, and the offspring of the serpent. He, speaking of the serpent, shall bruise your head. I mean, excuse me, speaking of the man, of the man in this passage, 15, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Then to the woman, you will suffer in childbearing. And to the man, your rulership, your kingship will be so fallen that you can't even keep weeds and thistles in line any longer, boy. Life just got hard. And he then seals that curse by putting them outside of the garden and sealing it over and saying, you can't go back. You Can't go back that way. There's no other way. You can't get there. You have no place in that place. You should feel the weight of that. I should feel the weight of that. I don't think we do. Listen, God created man in His image. That gives to us the value and the uniqueness of who we are. When someone asks you what makes you special, your one and only answer should be, I am not an animal. I am created... Originally, in the image of God. You want to know why murder is wrong because it's striking at the image of God. You want to know why abortion is abhorrent because it strikes at the image of God. You want to know why adultery and stealing and covetousness, all of that is evil because it is taking the things of God without God. It is the repeating of this same singular sin, rebellion against God. So, first of all, Adam was created in the image of God, and he was, he was the prophet, priest, and king of God, but he failed. And so, we have the situation before us. In Psalm 8, what it does is goes back in time, and it grabs that original Adam and says, look at the beauty there. That is what man should be. That's what you were made for. That was your destiny. And he spoke that in a world that was broken and fallen. So that the men in the audience and the women in the audience said, but David, that's not who we are. And so David says, you're right. There is a second Adam. Who will fulfill the destiny and the place of mankind. How do we know he thought that? Hebrews 2. Now we'll stay right here in this text. And we'll dig it out. So I've laid the foundation for you. This is the backdrop to our passage. Mankind. His exalted position over all of creation. And then his fall into sin. And how great a fall it was. Do you feel the weight of that? spitting in the face of God, grasping for equality with God, without God. Do you feel that? I feel it. I, f- I felt it all week. It's just, it's just inescapable, this feeling of in myself, there is no hope, there is no good, there is nothing desirable about me. I am a rebel in my nature, in my natural man. Like my forefather Adam, I grasped for the glory, and the honor without God. That's who I am. But listen, that's not who I am now. That's, that's who I was. That's who I am in my old man. But that's not who I am now. And this is the hope. You say, man, this is a downer of a sermon. And you seem so excited because I know the end. The end of what David wrote to us and what the writer of Hebrews says to us is you don't have to look back anymore to that Adam that lost it all. You can look forward. David was looking forward. Hebrews writers looking at Christ and saying there's one coming who's greater than that Adam. He's greater. He's the ultimate human. He's the ultimate man. We see Christ fulfilling the purpose of God in human flesh in Hebrews 2, 6-8a. through now let's look at this, this together. Christ is the image and exact imprint of God. We get that from our writer Hebrews in Hebrews 1 verse 3. Right? We also get it from Paul in Philippians. In Philippians chapter 2 verse 6 he says that, he was, that Christ was in the form of God. Right? The image, the form of God. And Colossians 1:15. He is the image of the invisible God. So Hank... Think with me. Adam was created in what? The image of God. He was created in the image of God. He's not the image of God in himself, but he was created in it, like it. Christ is what? The image of God. Do you see that? Now, there's more connections then there. There's more than just that. Because Christ is given dominion over all the created beings. We see that in Hebrews 1, verses 5 through 13. That long string of text, that long string of text tells us Christ rules. How do we see it? You are my son, today I have begotten you. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Let all God's angels worship him. He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Why your your throne, O oh God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This is the one, the Son, the one who finally communicated God to us. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. Sit at my right hand while I make your enemies your footstool for your feet. That's the word spoken about our Christ. He is ruling and reigning over creation. Our original man, Adam, was made to have dominion. And now Christ has dominion. Third thing we see about Christ in this text, in Hebrews, is that Christ is the true prophet, the true priest, the true king. What do we see? We see him as the priest in one, I mean, as the prophet in chapter one, verse two. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That speaking device is the word of a prophet. He is the prophet. Verse three. But he's not just a prophet, he's a priest. He makes purification for sins and then sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high, which is also his kingly rule. Christ in this one place in Hebrews is shown to be prophet, priest, and king. So just like our father Adam was a prophet, priest, and king, Christ, the second Adam, is prophet, priest, and king. So we have an exact parallel. Don't misunderstand me here. Typology was put into place by God Himself. That's why you've got to understand that God's plan was set out before the foundation of the world. You must understand that. When God made Adam, He didn't accidentally make him in His image. And then look up one day and say, well, this guy acts like he has rulership over the world. That's a cool idea. And he functions as a priest. He's praying in the garden. He's tending the garden. He's keeping evil out of the garden. He's, he's, this, this man's awesome. Oh, my goodness, he speaks on my behalf. Wow, that is so strange. He's a, in my image, prophet, priest, and king. Wow. No. God created Adam with these things. He made a type in the garden. He didn't become a type after Christ came. He was a type in the garden. He was always intended to display a small picture, a shadow of Christ. He isn't Christ, but he's a picture, a shadow a replication in a sense. An image bearer of Christ. Why? Because God had planned before he created Adam to send the second Adam to redeem the sons of Adam who fell with their father. That's the power of this text. The power of this text is in that He is greater than the angels. Why? Because He didn't subject the world that's coming to them, the angels. He subjected it to the second Adam. The second Adam will rule over the world. He will rule over the world. He will fulfill the destiny of mankind. We understand from this pastor in Hebrews that David's original meaning had so much to do with Christ being the one who rules over all things. We look at this and we have theologians have called it the condescension of Christ. The coming down of Christ. And truly it is that. The incarnation is a step down. Christ in the eternal dwelling with God stepped down. How could he do such? How could he step down from such a lofty place? Well, because he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. But he had this mind in him that he humbled himself and came as a man, servant, even to the death of a cross. Did you catch what I said? What was Adam's sin? What was Adam's sin? He grasped for equality with God. And what's the beauty of the incarnation? Christ did not grasp the equality with God. He stepped down and became man. He reversed the decision of mankind. He is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of the nature of God. And it is in Him that all things were created and by Him and for Him. All things were made. And then, it was the one, He was the one that redeemed His people by making propitiation for their sins. He made purifications for sin. And it was Him that was seated at the right hand of God. How did you get exalted to this place? Paul says in Ephesians, for it's the same one who came down who goes up. He came down in humility so that God might exalt him to the right hand. He took on Adam's flesh so he could reverse the sinfulness of Adam so that you could be saved and I could be saved. Do you see that? That is the picture of the Bible. Adam failed. He lost it all. And the second Adam grasped it all. How? By humility. He stepped down. He divested his equality with God, though he still was God, and he came in the flesh. He was 100% God and 100% man. And he dwelled among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is our Jesus how will you escape so great a salvation? That's the writer of Hebrews. That's his point. How are you planning to get by the judgment of God if you spit in the face of this Jesus? He not only made you, He's redeemed you. He not only sits high and exalted at the right hand of the Father, but He put on flesh and became one of you. And you're going to scoff at Him and try to find another way? It's not prideful to believe Christ is the only way. It's prideful to believe there's any other way. God did what only God could do, and He did it in the only way it could be done. God could not save mankind without becoming a man. Yeah, I know. Some of your eyebrows went up like, God can't. Said, you heard me right. God could not save mankind, his people, his elect, who he planned to save before the foundation of the world, unless he became flesh. Jesus is the only way. There's no option for God to say, oh, I know they spit in my face and they sinned against me, but it's okay, we'll just forget that. Move on, I'll save you anyway. No, he can't do that. He had to come. Now do you see what Matthew is painting in the entire book of Matthew? He's really unfolding for it's this picture of God as in the flesh, Jesus as the second Adam. He really is the one who does that. Because it's Adam who he picks as his backdrop. And then he moves through the life of Christ. Showing how at every point God tested Adam and Adam failed. And at every point God tested Christ and Christ passed the test all the way to the garden where he's there in the crucible of suffering, facing it, and he says, let this cup pass from me if it be possible, but if not, I'll drink it. There's no other way that you can be saved except through Christ, because if there had been another way, don't you believe our God would have taken the suffering away and allowed you to be saved another way? There's no other way. He's the only way. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying by quoting for us this passage. Now, quickly, to end this is so astounding God cared for man and so he made himself for a little while lower than the angels and then he was crowned with glory and honor and he put everything in subjection under his feet verse 8 says now in the in putting everything in subjection to him he left nothing outside of his control so everything is under Him. At this present time, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. And, he, and we, we feel that, don't we? Some of you have broken marriages. Some of you have been divorced. And some of you are on the verge of divorce. It's broken. You say, I don't see everything in subjection to Christ in my life. Some of you are suffering with sickness. Some of you have been through the crucible of cancer in our congregation. Some of you have had hip replacements, knee replacements. Your body's falling apart. You're not what you once were in your best days. And even in your best days, you weren't the best of man. Right? And you're saying, it's not the way it's supposed to be. Your job is eternally frustrating to you. It just never seems to come to an end. It just piles up and it becomes more and more frustrating. The weeds and the thorns are just creeping in everywhere and you can't keep them out. It's killing you. You feel like it's choking you out. Some of you have been wrestling with sin since the day you were saved and it's the same sins and you don't feel like God's released you yet and you're getting defeated. You're looking down and saying, I'm just not going to make it. And the writer of Hebrews lifts our eyes Notice where he lifts our eyes to. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. What do we see? Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely, Jesus. We see Jesus. You're in your suffering. You want to know how this applies? You say, all that theology, what does that mean to my daily living? You can't make it through your daily life unless you understand who Jesus is on your behalf. He's not simply 100% God and then he put on a flesh and he kind of was man. No, he's 100% God, 100% man. He understands everything. Bit of your suffering. He suffered. He suffered. And because he suffered, you can look at him and you can say, He is now reigning at the right hand of the Father. There's hope for me. Oh, I feel like everything's falling apart in my marriage. There's hope. Where? In Jesus, not in the goodness that I have, but in his goodness. My job is eternally frustrating. What do I do about it? I look to him who is my king and my savior, Jesus. That's who we see. The world's falling apart. Tornadoes are striking. People are dying. We look to Jesus. That's what he's done with Psalm 8. He's lifted it up into the highest of Christology and said, if you want hope in this present age where all things are subjected yet we don't yet feel or see them subjected, you look to the ultimate man, Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad he didn't reject The role of mankind. He didn't make him like angels. He made him like man. He didn't keep him in spiritual form. He put him in flesh. Why? So he can understand our sorrow. Be acquainted with our grief. That's what the text is going to say. That's why I'm so excited. Because of Hebrews 2, 5 through 8, I am today more confident than I was three weeks ago. That there is hope. And I am encouraged like never before in my life because I've been gazing at Christ in this text and throughout the scriptures to say, How great a salvation we have. And I am more prayerful today than I've ever been in my life. Before God, on my face, saying, don't let me drift from this truth. I want to hold this truth until my dying breath. Christ is my Adam. I have been taken from the death of Adam to the life of Christ. I've been taken from the fallenness and the despair of Adam and put into the Holy of Holies with Christ. Ephesians 2.6 says, For by grace He saved you, and He lifted you up and placed you in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3 says, When we do not yet see what we will be, but when He appears, who is our life, then we will see who we really are. Everything I am, all of my identity is in the second Adam, who represents me before the Father. That is my hope. That is my salvation. And I'm begging you for the same. Will you not swerve away from this? Will you grasp hold of this great salvation by faith? Won't you take the one who took your place today? If you're here and you're lost, I challenge you to take Him as He is in all of His glory. And if you have Him, that you never leave Him, that you hold on until your dying breath, this One who became flesh and dwelt among us and became the ultimate man that we might have ultimate freedom and life.